celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of our podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also maybe coming to you from New York City is our guest today, Michael Weiss. Are you in New York City, Michael Weiss? If Queens counts still as New York City, then yes, I am. Oh, I think I think I think it does. Michael is senior correspondent at Yahoo News and the co-author of The Menace of Unreality: How the Kremlin Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and a forthcoming book on Russian espionage. Glad you're with us today, Michael. I'm happy to be back. And coming to us from our nation's capital, we have of course, Dr. Corey Shockey. How are you doing today, Corey? I am exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Corey, of course, runs the foreign policy and security programs at American Enterprise Institute. And she is joined, as is also usual, by the uh, fabulous Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing today, Rosa? I'm good, David. Are you in the nation's capital or someplace else? I am. Oh, well, good. Uh, that's, I'm glad it is under your, uh, your, your steady control, guys. So I have a few <laughs> questions for you on, on Russia, because this is what Michael has been focusing on most. Then we'll take our little break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about President Biden's meeting with President Xi in Bali. Let's start with Russia, and let's start with Kherson and the breakthrough made by the uh, Ukrainians. And Michael, maybe just give us your sense of the state of play. Well, I mean, it's a massive victory for Ukraine, uh, made more so by the fact that this was a an announced withdrawal by the Russian government. Uh, Putin must have authorized it himself, um, so it allowed the Ukrainians essentially to roll in to the first and only provincial capital the Russians took since February 24th, uh, in an area that they annexed as recently as September 30th, 
without resorting to street to street combat and and the what would have been a, a, a devastating campaign in a population center. So you know, I, I, it's not obviously without firing a shot. There was a, a, a long standing, months long war of um, what General Mick Ryan has, I think, um, eloquently known to a campaign of corrosion. In other words, hitting the Russians, their logistics, their supply lines, their ammunition depots, and raining fire with HIMARS down on their military infrastructure. But the Russians really had no choice. They had to withdraw. Otherwise, it was going to be uh, a real meat grinder for them. And we don't have to, this is not based on our own analysis. This is based on, on what their own military leadership has said, uh, including the the commander of Russian forces in Ukraine, who told the defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, that this was de- designed to um, preserve the lives of our servicemen. So it's it's both a battlefield victory for the Ukrainians, but I think also a propaganda victory for them, that they essentially had to force the Russians into, I don't know what euphemism du jour they're using these days, a goodwill gesture, a strategic or tactical withdrawal or whatever, but it's it's a defeat for Putin, for sure. So, Corey, comment on this or question for Michael or comment with a question or question with a comment? Well, since 65% of what I believe I understand about what's happening in the war in Ukraine comes from reading Michael, I'm just going to endorse what he said there. I, I do think that it's not surprising that every time Ukraine scores a big victory, People in the West start wringing their hands and want negotiations uh, because many of us are still dramatically underestimating what Ukraine is capable of achieving on the battlefield and want to have these, you know, these earnest conversations about how military force can't solve this problem. But military force is the cause of this problem, Russians' invasion of Ukraine. And military force is the solution to this problem, which is Ukraine retaking all of its internationally recognized territory and Russia suffering the humiliating defeat that this breach of the UN charter deserves. What do you think of that, Michael? Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, look at how much has changed and how much conventional wisdom has been upended in the last eight or nine months. We went from Kiev is going to fall in 72 hours to, okay, bravo, Ukraine, you've safeguarded your, your capital and driven the Russians out, but you're never going to be able to take any more territory. I mean, David, the last time I was on your show, we kept using this cliched term, a war of attrition, right? And I said, I remember saying at the time, I said, look, by Ukraine's lights, it's only a war of attrition, attrition in that they're the ones doing the attriting. <laughs> the Russians are the ones being attrited, right? And they were planning this massive counteroffensive in Kherson then that seemed like a, a, a head fake uh, because they they then suddenly went on this blitzkrieg in the northeast in Kharkiv, reclaiming thousands of square kilometers of terrain within the space of about three weeks, a surprise counteroffensive that the United States evidently war-gamed with them. So Washington was was integral in, in this success. And then everyone said, okay, well, great. Uh, you know, they've taken Kharkiv, but that was because they can't really take her son. The Russians are too dug in there. Well, now, lo and behold, they've they've done that as well. At least the the left bank. I'm sorry, the uh, the western bank of the Dnipro River. So the question is, what will they do next that will shock the world? Whilst the world insists that they are incapable of doing anything next. And look, I mean, I've seen a lot of chatter in the media, especially in the American press, that 
well, winter is coming and that means that things are going to grind to a halt. Uh, the ground will freeze and, and all of these things. And yet my writing partner at Yahoo, James Rushton, is in Kiev uh, and talks to defense officials and, and military personnel all the time. And he says, you know, this notion that winter is going to somehow put an end to the Ukrainian campaign and its ability to retake terrain is simply something that has not dawned on the Ukrainians. They still think that they can can press ahead. So I don't know. I mean, it's not like wars always stop in the winter. Right. That would come as a surprise to the soldiers who fought the Battle of the Bulge. Well, Well, February 24th, the invasion was, I think, technically still the winter. So, you know. Well, exactly. When I was talking to a very senior U.S. official about it, that was exactly the point he made. He said this war started on February 24th. So, you know, it's likely to continue just as it has been through the winter. Right. And, and all of those forbidding conditions apply equally, if not more so, to the occupying force, the Russians, and as they do to, to the defending army. Um, and, you know, Ukraine has, has also demonstrated ability to project power well beyond uh, sort of the, 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 the geographical limits of at least our own imagination. I mean, they've been striking deep in, inside enemy territory in Crimea, using weaponry that has been both publicly disclosed and publicly not so disclosed. Um, the latest is are these sort of kamikaze ships, the, 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 the sort of waterborne equivalent of suicide drones, which they, they pummeled Sevastopol with uh, recently. So they have a lot of imagination and ingenuity with which they're, they're prosecuting this campaign. And, you know, it is interesting that where the Russians have pulled back and, and have now declared their new administrative capital in Kherson is out of the range of the ammunition that we have supplied them with for use with their HIMARS, their high mobility um, mobile rockets. an argument for longer range equipment going yeah, to I was Europe. just going to say. So, you know, the, the answer to that is, well, if you want them driven out of that place, then give them ATACMs or give them, you know, PRISM missile systems, which can hit very far. And, and look, I mean, I know you're going to want to ask me about Poland, David, but I just, in, just to tease that, that aspect of this. You know, one of the fears the U.S. has had is is a fear of escalation, and also, as Corey alluded to, a fear that Putin simply cannot countenance defeat. He cannot countenance being outmarshaled on the battlefield. And yet, time and time again, we've now seen three major phases of the war, the Battle of Kiev, the counteroffensive in Kharkiv, and now the counteroffensive in Kherson. All were humiliating defeats for Putin, and all did not lead to some significant escalation. They led, to, if anything, perhaps to an uptick in the kind of thing he was doing on February 24th. Now you're seeing attacks on civilian infrastructure, trying to, to take out the electricity, the power grid to limit Ukraine's um, energy supplies. But that is not strategically going to alter the calculus on the, on, the, on the battlefield. It's not changing the facts on the ground. And Ukrainians, again, they don't care. They, they, they will suffer through darkness. They will suffer through the cold if they have to. And if they make it through this winter, and particularly if they make it through this winter and manage to recapture more territory, I think that that's almost the beginning of the end for Putin and this this campaign or this disastrous misadventure, I should say. And and President me, Zelensky has has couched it in those terms himself. Let me invite Rosa in here and get your take on where all this stands, and then maybe we'll turn to uh, this Polish issue after that, unless Rosa wants to turn to it now. No, I, Michael has partly answered the question that I was going to ask him, but it's probably worth fleshing out a little bit more. My question, I suppose, is a variant of David Petraeus's famous Iraq War question, which is, which is where does this end? And I mean, it will not shock anybody here 
to know that I'm a, I'm, I'm a slightly more pessimistic here than Corey, but I, I still am concerned about what Putin does at the end of the day. And maybe I shouldn't even say Putin at this point. What, what does Russia do at the end of the day? If there is really a, a more definitive defeat, you know, how do they respond? And is it, is it in fact feasible that they sort of go gently into that good night and kind of just slink away with their tails between their legs and that's the end of that? That would be great. You know, I, that would be fantastic. It would be a wonderful end to this David and Goliath story. And, you know, would love it to happen, but I, I can't help but fear that the risk of, I don't know if I would even say escalation, maybe the wrong word, but that that they've got life left in them and sort of ability to, you know, to take, forget, slinking away with their tails between their legs, they still have the ability to sort of lash out with a you know, poison tip tail here, not just at the Ukrainians, but also at surrounding companies, also at the West more generally. And so I'm curious to know, for both Michael and Corey, to the extent that you have your crystal balls out, what do you see as how this, how this ends? And not how we would like this to end, but how you think it actually is likely to end. Well, I, would, I wouldn't um, conflate further Ukrainian victories, whether tactical or strategic, with Russia slinking away and, and sort of meekishly or meekly saying, um, well, that's it, I guess game over. I mean, I, I still see them as a threat and a danger, both militarily to Ukraine, to other countries. I mean, again, I will tease the, 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 the fact that they just struck, probably accidentally, Poland, killing two Polish stop, civilians. Stop teasing. Sorry. Six. Explain what happened. Well, I mean, you know, like I, I'm I'm glued to Twitter trying to digest the incoming information, but um, it seems that uh, Russia, in a, an attempt to strike probably civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, missed and instead struck inside Polish territory. A senior U.S. intelligence official, according to the Associated Press, says that uh, missiles crossed into NATO member Poland, killing two people. And as we speak, the Polish cabinet is having an emergency meeting to determine I don't know what. Um, I, I don't I don't want to sound too alarmist, and I, nor do I see this being an invocation of Article Five collective defense. But I could certainly see it being an invocation of Article Four, which is consultations at the highest level among NATO members, because this is exactly the contingency that everybody was worried about that this conflict would bleed over outside of Ukraine's territory into NATO member states, right? Now the question is, you know, again, is this is this was this a, a provocation with intent, or is this something that was an accident that Russian hawks and ultras will gleefully accept as sort of the um, the unintended but felicitous consequences of what they consider to be a NATO proxy war, right? And Margarita Semenyon, Russia Today's editor in chief, posted: Now Poland has its Belgorod Oblast. Is that is that what you wanted? So in other words, she is suggesting that this strike was purposeful, even though she would be in no position to know that herself, but is a sort of rubbing Poland's face in it. Um, and, and this is the kind of escalation, or I guess the the kind of dangerous gray area I think Rosa was alluding to here. But, and and, and again, you know, I, and I just got back from a European country doing a piece on, on counterintelligence. The Russian threat at that level remains unremitting. You know, you have Yevgeny Prigozhin, the financier of Wagner, which is now doing even more atrocities, but doing it and, and claiming credit for them, luxuriating in, in their savagery in a way that I haven't seen before. And I've been studying Wagner for several years. Prigozhin is, is, is now openly copping to the fact that he interferes in U.S. presidential contests. 
right? U.S. intelligence concluded that the, Putin did not withdraw from her son before the midterm elections, hoping that Republicans would do better than they did, and thus trying to alter the political landscape and the willingness to increase or maintain security assistance to Ukraine. So all of this is, is of a piece, I think. You know, Russia will not stop antagonizing, challenging, in some cases, I mean, hitting directly, kinetically, the yeah. West. But that doesn't mean that that Putin is going to launch a tactical nuclear weapon. And, you know, look, I, I take the Biden administration's warnings about this seriously, but I take even more seriously what the U.S. intelligence community has has concluded, which is that they have seen no untoward activity with respect to the recourse by the Russian side to WMD. And, and look, as somebody who studies Russian active measures and and part of the book I'm writing is on their disinformation schemes, which also work hand in glove with their intelligence operations. Threatening to unleash World War III or to launch ICBMs at the West, I mean, this is what this is essentially what the Russians fall back on all the time, especially when they feel cornered, especially when they're um, very, very worried that the West is, for lack of a better term, growing a spine and looking to challenge them more robustly than they had been. And so far, I mean, to America's credit, you're not seeing the whir of the back pedal. You're not seeing a diminution in security assistance. If anything, you're seeing an increase. And I think it's a testament to the fact that, okay, you know, Putin makes a threat, we call his bluff, and then he backs down. I mean, he does not escalate in the way that we 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 had uh, envisaged. And so we then, we take it up a notch. And there are limits to that, David, obviously, that, you know, there are things we're not going to provide the Ukrainians with, because we would consider that crossing some red line, however you choose to define it. But so far, I mean, I have to applaud this administration's policy. It, it's, it's been working. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve. Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me frame this because I'd like to frame it for you, Corey and Rosa, as we sort of come into the last sort of 10 minutes of this discussion. Because if I'm an average American, I may not be paying attention, but if I'm an average American who is paying attention to this, I'm a bit confused right at the moment. I have, in rapid succession, a big Ukrainian victory in Kherson, wind at the back of Ukraine and all of this. I have the there's some people out there saying the you know administration should pivot to negotiation right now. I just saw one of those before I got on the air. But the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, on the plane to Asia, gave a very clear outline of what the U.S. position is. And essentially, it hasn't changed. It's 
we're supporting Ukraine. When this war ends is up to Ukraine. Russia can end this war anytime. They're the ones who are the war maker. They can just leave. Ukraine is on the side of peace. He was very explicit. He's sticking his position. The CIA director, Bill Burns, traveled to Ankara to apparently meet with the head of Russian intelligence to say, don't think of doing the wrong thing with nuclear weapons, which again is the right thing to do, communicate with them. And the response can be swift and severe if you do. And now all of a sudden, you've got this apparently accidental escalation. A couple of missiles hit a Polish farm. A couple of people are killed. Poland is scrambling jets. It's got its cabinet meeting. It's clearly going to require some response from NATO. And if I'm the, you know, engaged, I'm like, well, where is this going? Well, like, what's going on here? Or is this, Corey, the fog of war? Well, it certainly is the fog of war, right? Something happened minutes ago. We're all scrambling for information, looking for trusted sources, trying to figure it out. But a couple of things I think are important for that average American to understand. We didn't cause this problem. Russia's aggression caused this problem. Russia has it in its power to continue to do terrible things in Ukraine and beyond. They are losing the war in Ukraine. I, David, I don't think I would be as confident as you and Michael are that this is an errant missile that missed its target because it seems to me entirely plausible that Vladimir Putin losing the war in Ukraine would rather lose to NATO than he would lose to Ukraine itself. So this could be purposeful escalation. And we have seen other escalations by Putin, the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline using gas as a weapon. So, but the thing is, we shouldn't lose perspective that we are the strong ones in this equation. And both militarily and morally, we are the strong ones in this equation. And if we permit Russian threats or even Russian actions to cause us to falter in our support for Ukraine or falter in our defense of a NATO ally, the world will get much more dangerous and much less prosperous for us, not just for the victims of these attacks. And so we have to do what George Schultz used to call weeding the garden, because if we lose our nerve and say, this is getting scary, when we're actually the strong ones and the Russians are the weak ones in this, then we will facilitate other malevolent states from choosing violence to upend an international order that has kept us safe and prosperous. Rosa? Well, I still, Corey, I'm still curious to see what you think is the, the most likely end game. I think the most likely end game is Russia losing, being forced out of Ukraine, including Crimea, and being surly and dangerous, but slowly accepting that outcome because any of the alternatives you know, choosing a genuine escalation that brings the United States into the war not only would end with the Russian government destroyed, 
but it would destroy Russian power, right? Like what's a post-war Russia's place in the international order if it chooses to do some of the things that it sounds like Bill Burns was cautioning them against doing? So they can either lose gracefully what they have wrongly attempted, or they can lose much bigger and more. And I think at the end of the day, the Russians will gnash their teeth and accept their loss in Ukraine because every other alternative is actually worse for them. I hope that's right. And I, and I, and that does seem to me to be a distinct possibility. You know, I'm always looking for the sort of paranoid bad thing that could happen. But one oh, thing yeah, that I've got a lot of nightmares about what could happen, Rosa. Yeah. But, I mean, but my assessment of what the Russians have done so far. So far. They, yeah. Well, one thing that actually lost the war in the north. Then they said that's never what they were doing. Mm-hmm. They lost the war in the northeast. And they said they were restructuring their forces and getting ready for the big offensive. They lost the war now in Kherson, and it's a strategic repositioning. So I think they're going to reposition themselves all the way back onto Russian territory. You know, the one thing that did give me um, a little bit more sense of optimism was that President Xi, I know we're going to talk about China later, David, but but we've seen we've seen uh, President Xi come out more squarely saying that the, you know, threat or use of nuclear weapons has got to be off the table. And I was glad to see that being made express um, and rather than being left implicit. I think the only the only flaw in your logic, Corey, which may not be a flaw, is that it rests on the assumption of of rational behavior, which and I used to believe pre-Russian invasion of Ukraine, I used to actually be very much in the camp of, you know, he's evil, but he's not nuts. And he is a rational actor and he will he will push and push and push as long as he thinks he can, but then he will back off and sulk. But, you know, that'll be the end of that. I, I'm a little bit less sure now. I mean, I don't see any, as you say, I don't think there's any reason to sort of worry about what happens tomorrow or next week. But I, I still am slightly fearful of the numerous non-rational actors who appear to be out there. Yeah, fair point. I, I would, I would, you know, to that point, I think it's important to understand, you know, this the, the Cold War concept of mirror imaging. You know, what is rational behavior to a guy like Vladimir Putin? I mean, if you've if you've lived the last eight years in which you have illegally annexed European territory, and the worst you've had to withstand is some sanctions—not even sectoral sanctions, but you know, oligarchs and members of your security apparatus who don't exactly travel to Washington or or you know, spend money in the West. That was a sign that perhaps this war would go in your favor, right? And and the other thing that Putin has has also been either misled as to or has deluded himself into thinking is that he had this bright, shiny new army. I mean, this was Sergei Shoigu's reforms to, to the Russian military. Uh, he intervened in Syria in 2015, not against ISIS, as, as he propagandistically declared actually at the UN General Assembly in September of that year exhorting the United States to join in an alliance with him in Syria, uh, similar to World War II. But he intervened really against U.S.-backed proxies in in the form of the um, CIA-facilitated Free Syrian Army groups. And he wiped the floor with them. And the United States basically shrugged its shoulders and said, "Okay, well, you know, that's unfortunate, but this is going to be your quagmire. And it wasn't his quagmire. So I, I genuinely think within the Russian framework that uh, he saw this war as a rational act. He genuinely believed, and he was, I'm sure, fed a, a load of 
horse crap about this by the FSB. And there's been some credible analysis and reporting about the the, the Fifth Service and its rampant corruption and its uh, desire to please the czar. He was fed a nonsense that Ukraine was essentially an entire country of fifth columnists in waiting that would greet him and the Russian army as as liberators. I mean, I remember talking to Mustafa Jamilev, the uh, the leader of the Crimean Tatar population, several years ago, and he told me that right after the annexation of Crimea, he had an urgent telephone call with Putin, and he said, you know, what is happening? What is going on? And Putin kept telling him, oh, you know, it, there's a fascist junta that's taken control in Kiev. And it's backed by the United States. And Jamilev, who's known Putin for many years, said he genuinely believed his own propaganda. This this was gospel to him. So I think for Putin, it, it is a combination of wickedness and, in his mind, a form of rationality. But you know, to that point, developments in the past week suggest something rather optimistic. If you're worried about sort of the the danger of what Russia might do, withdrawing from Kherson was a very pragmatic thing to do. Uh, if Putin were a madman. Man, or if he was in sort of a Lear-like cognitive degeneration, he would have just thrown everything he could at, at hanging on to that city. And he was told by his military leadership that this is unsustainable and it would be even more of a disaster. So he withdrew. And yet, again, the, the kind of virtual reality with which he maintains the illusion of power and success and maintains it fundamentally to his own people, right? Putin does not really care what we hear on this podcast or we in the West think of him. Um, he cares what the Russian people think of him, and he certainly cares, you know, whether or not they're growing restive enough to do anything to challenge his rule. The historian and scholar Timothy Snyder had an excellent essay several weeks ago about this, and he said, "Look, it's understandable that we think we must fashion some kind of off-ramp or face-saving gesture for Putin, but we don't need to do that. He can do it himself, basically by changing the channel or by changing the script. And you see this now, time and again, right? It's not defeat; it's uh, tactical withdrawal. Saki Air Base." The Ukrainians destroyed upwards of 50% of the Black Sea Naval Aviation Group in a, uh, what commanders illusionally said was a series of missile strikes, which is very interesting because they don't have missiles that can travel that far, so far as we know. But anyway, and what was the Russian response? It was an industrial accident. They don't even claim when they're being hit embarrassingly by the Ukrainian side. So, so there are ways here that Putin can sort of justify to himself and to his own constituency, such as it is. That this is, in fact, you know, up is down, black is white, and defeat is is really victory. And as far as the 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 nationalists and the hawks are concerned, remember, if they had it their way, there would already be nukes raining down, not on Kiev, but on Warsaw, on London, on Paris. And, and you know, he loves to kind of let these guys run rampant, particularly on Russian state television, in in effect, to, to as a form of scaremongering to let the West know. You know, after me, the deluge. If you think I'm bad, wait till you see who's waiting in the wings here. So you better do business with me. But I think we have enough data over the past several years to determine that when we push back, when the Russians are edged out, the faded fear, the faded escalation that we've all kind of taken in with mother's milk as a form of international relations theory, it doesn't actually happen. They come up with some grand rationalization or or some fairy tale to tell themselves as to why it didn't happen. So. I don't know. I mean, I, I think we have to base our analysis and our foreign policy on the evidence rather than on sort of grand philosophical designs of what might happen. You know, and again, that's why I think when the U.S. intelligence community tells me that there has been detected signs of moving nuclear warheads out of silos and things like that, then I'm going to start to worry. But until that moment, I, I just 
I, I don't think we can afford to, to take their propaganda at face value. Let me uh, wrap this up by saying a couple of things. One, this information about missiles hitting Poland arrived as we were doing this podcast. And we don't know exactly what happened. The Polish government has been very conservative about it. They have not said exactly is what happened. The U.S. government said, as this podcast was happening moments ago, that we have no information at this time to corroborate the reports. There are pictures. We don't know what it means. We don't know what the origins of it were. And uh, I think we need to do the right thing, which Corey described, which is seeking trusted sources and watching as it unfolds. I think we also need to brace ourselves for the fact that in the event that either accidentally or intentionally, this is actually the truth of Russian missiles uh, hitting Poland, there are going to be people on both sides that use it to bolster their arguments. Some will use it to say we must get tougher. Others will use it to say, see, this is what can happen in a war like this, and that can lead to escalation. We need to stop right now. And again, I think we need to stop. I personally, based on following this thing extremely closely uh, since the outset, happen to agree with Corey in terms of my guess as to what's going to happen at the end. But I also know it's a guess. We don't know. The U.S. has remained resolute. NATO has remained resolute. The armies of Ukraine have remained courageous and successful. And uh, that points in a direction. And I think, as Michael says, where this can all lead is to a rational conclusion by the Russians to pull out. If uh, I think Corey used the word surly pull out, uh, I think it may be a surly pull out. But, you know, we have to watch and see and get as much good information and analysis as we can. And that's why we do this. So, Michael, hopefully you will be back again soon. Everybody should watch Michael's work. He's got great things coming. And we will have you back again soon. For all of you who are out there in the world at large who are not members, this is where we take a break and enter the members-only part of this. And we encourage you to become members. And if you aren't convinced enough by this podcast, if you're in the Washington area and you go next Monday night, November 21st, to Politics and Prose, you can hear me talk about my book in conversation with Ed Luce of the Financial Times, the famous, well-accented Ed Luce. So that might make you more inclined even to join us, uh, and we hope you will join us there. So bye-bye for now. Bye-bye, Michael. Thank you so much, Michael. And members, stand by 